Hello and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Ben Branson is the founder of Seedlip and his mission is twofold, to solve the what to drink when you're not drinking dilemma and to continue his family's 300-year farming heritage. Seedlip launched in late 2015 from Ben's kitchen and is now available in over 20 countries and in many of the world's best cocktail bars and restaurants. We talked about how to create a movement, what category definition really is, why he still gets excited when he sees the product behind a bar, and how sustainability is integral to his belief system. Ben is really getting it right in terms of balance. He came out of the gate hard when the brand launched, traveled the world and created a new category. Now he has a new business, a wife, children, and lives on the farm, deeply connected to nature. Ben needs no introduction, and I have no doubt that you will be very inspired by his story, whatever stage of your business journey you are currently at. Can you kick off by telling me what Seedlip is and what the brand mission is? Yeah, so Seedlip is the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirits. Uh, I'm really trying to basically give people a decent grown-up non-alcoholic option that doesn't treat you like a child uh, if for whatever reason uh, you're not drinking alcohol. What were you doing before you started the brand? Uh, so I, I come from a farming family. Um, we've been farming for, excuse the helicopter going above my head, um that's fine is that your ride after this uh recording (laughs) (laughs) we've been farming farming for about 320 years up in up in lincolnshire and so you know grew up countryside boy sitting on tractors um outside and that sort of mum's side of the family and then my dad's actually in the world of design um so I, I sort of had a, yeah, this curious, I guess, interesting mixture of learning about potatoes and barley and also learning about brands and design and uh, looking at supermarket shelves in a whole different way. Um, and I, you know, I, I left school and farming was definitely not interesting and definitely not sexy. And I kind of was more intrigued by, yeah, the design world. So I started working the, in design agencies and ended up having my own agency working for mainly sort of premium brands. We were a small agency um, and we're doing work for, I don't know, brands like Farrenball, um and did some work for Nike and quite happy, you know, nice, nice small agency, clients we really wanted to work with living in the countryside with my dogs, growing herbs and veg at home. 
just quite happy, not not looking for to start a business. Um, and yeah, just sort of quite, quite settled, actually. Uh, you, you mentioned that when you left school, you knew farming wasn't the thing for you. Had you studied particular subjects with a view that you knew you were going, going to go into a certain profession? Or when you left school, were you looking around for something? Um, or was it very clear to you that you wanted to go into to agencies? Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest. I, I you know, I, I left school and I I went straight down to London and started uh, started at Prulee's cooking school and, and trained to be a chef. That was kind of, that was my first sort of, right, um, I'm going to do that. And I did that. And that, I guess that gave me a good basis for, you know, I love my food. I love flavor. I like cooking. Um, and then I... <laughs> Then I went and I sold British gas door to door and I worked in a pub and I was a security guard and and then I went traveling for, for two years basically and worked my way around learning how to fire breathe and stuff and put on shows in Thailand and became a snowboard instructor in New Zealand and just, yeah, I, I sort of, I knew, always knew I'd come back to England but and I knew, I guess, in my heart that design was definitely something that intrigued me. Um, but, yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd leave school and, and go and experience a few more things first. How relevant has the fire breathing course been for your day-to-day now? Uh, I am absolutely fascinated by fire. I will say that. Um, okay, the pyromania. Yeah, it has been not massively relevant sure. um, other than other than, I guess, the process of taking an absolutely massive risk um, mm-hmm. when it comes to putting uh, a flammable liquid in your mouth um, sure. and breathing out a flame, which mm. you know, I'm a bit older now. Yeah, when you say like that, it doesn't seem like something you'd encourage your children to do. I mean, it's interesting though, because I think there's a lot of um, pressure, particularly through the lens of social media, on a slightly unrealistic shape of what entrepreneurialism looks like. And obviously many, many people do it in many, many different ways. But would you say that your experiences after school of being free and being able to go and try lots of different things and travel and meet different people and actually not have that rigidity of going straight into a job and beginning to have to sort of uh, bend to the pressures of society of the the day-to-day do you think that was really important for you to to have been exposed to that before you ended up coming up with with your big business idea I think so I, I think what I you know all of my family worked for themselves and I was surrounded by a fantastic work ethic um, growing up. You know, farming's bloody hard work. And uh, my dad having his own business, I could see how hard he worked. And so I I kind of, I I guess I took that into, uh, A, my my cooking studies and, and working really hard at that. And then B, working while I traveled was really important. Um, so I think that that definitely it set me up to have hopefully a good curious cultural perspective on meeting lots of different people and doing lots of different things and 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 seeing lots of different parts of the world. Um, but sort of backbone of you know working really hard um, to make something happen, and then I and, I and I guess within that taking some risks, you know, and and starting your own business is a massive risk. Um, mm. We'll know. Uh, and there are no guarantees. Uh, mm. at all. Um, and I, I'm not sure that's necessarily always spoken about the risk element. Um, you know, it's sort of, Hey, it's going to be, you know, hustle and bustle and you're going to fail and you're going to learn. But, but actually I don't often hear people talk about it is just a massive risk and, mm. It's a massive financial risk. It's a massive, you know, emotional risk. Uh, it can be a massive physical risk. Um, and yeah, that I am a risk taker. I guess is is what what I did learn following school. Um, and I definitely take 
forward. Is there a part of the kind of risk assessment of running a business that made you uh, more cautious? Was it the financial part or was it social, emotional? Was there a bit that you thought, actually, if I get that wrong, I'm in a world of pain? I I think because Seedlip initially wasn't a business idea and it happened far more organically and you know my initial plan was it was going to be a side project and I was going to launch something uh, just at the local farmer's market and sort of give something a go I think that lessened the burden and lessened the pressure and the expectation that I was putting myself under that it was just like let's just give this a go I think then probably six seven months in I realized that I was absolutely obsessed with this kind of quest and was so, so wrapped up in it and so enjoying learning and the risk element and the thrill of it that then it was just about I had to see it through. And seeing it through to me was only getting a bottle on shelf. It was, that was it. That was all that mattered was yeah. I'd had lots of ideas before, but I'd never seen anything through. And so the moment of getting something on a shelf, that was almost the finish to me <laughs> in a mm. way. Um, mm. That was like job done. I've, I'm, I'm done now. Yeah. Well, you hear it with, particularly with writers, they sort of say, I don't mind how the book does. I just want to get the book published and on a shelf. And then they get it on the shelf and then it's like, there's now a movie rights opportunity and there's now that, and it's sort of, it's be, it's so far beyond your comprehension of what you could achieve in in some ways that um it sort of opens your eyes up to the possibilities which I which I do want to to come on to talk to you about I'm interested in um your point about it being a bit of a side hustle because um I started my business when I was 22 so I was straight out of university and I do often people often say to me um oh, you know, you're really young and I can't believe you did that. And my feeling about it is that it's actually a lot easier when you're 20, 21, 22, because you've got, you've got fuck all at that point. So, I mean, the idea of losing anything is relatively minimal. The idea of giving up a career or being 30 or, you know, in your thirties, not really having landed on the thing yet, feeling a little bit unfulfilled, feeling like you still got a quest, not really knowing what it is, wanting a family, having a mortgage, you know, that's a very different type of risk because you actually stand to lose something. Um, What was happening for you in your sort of personal life or your professional life around the time that, that you came up with the idea and decided to, to start working on it more than just a side hustle? Yeah, I was in a, I guess I was in a very different position to where I am now with, with kids, wife, you know, home, et cetera, um, that I, there was a sort of, I guess, looking back, you know, there was a window. I was, what, 30, just 30. uh, Two dogs were probably my only real responsibility. Um, And I could, yeah, I could take the risk and I could, um, Ultimately, what I did was was sacrifice a lot in terms of family, friends, um, you know, social life, etc. To to kind of make this my absolute sort of number one, um, and that meant I could spend over two hundred days out of the UK three years in a row launching Seedlip, you know, in lots of cities around the world and and I could kind of I could do that and I could work seven days a week and I'm I'm not recommending that but I I sort of yeah I guess I picked the window within my life to kind of go this is what I'm going to do and this is what I think needs to happen and I'm gonna uh take my holidays absolutely and Mm. build a great team and we're gonna we're gonna go for it um and now things are much, yeah, now things are slightly different and more balanced um, mm. because of Seedlit that I have my kids and my wife. So, you know, yeah, it the risk in my view has paid off. Um, but I was, 
yeah, lucky, I guess, in a sense, like you were of, well, I, I can do this now. I can, I, mm. I don't have lots of responsibilities. I'm not taking a massive financial risk and I can, if it doesn't work, do something else. Yeah. It'd be very different now. Now I have a mortgage. I'm like, would I do that? Oh, I don't know <laughs> if I was being paid really well in a job somewhere. It sounds quite cushy. Um, did you have family and friends who were entrepreneurial? Did you have a network around you that really understood what you were doing and therefore could be supportive? Or did, did you feel like you were having to sort of explain and, and almost be like, guys, just give me just give me like five years and then I'll reappear. But just let me let me do this. I mean, I my my family my family definitely know that I'm all or nothing. Um, and my brothers both work for themselves. My father works for himself. My uncles work for themselves. Cousins work, you know, I, I'm surrounded by, and, and I guess, you know, it's easy to forget that farmers are, uh, founders, owners, you know, entrepreneurs, um, they work for themselves. So yeah, I was definitely surrounded by it and always wanted to work for myself. Um, and, but, you know, initially family and friends just thought this was the most ridiculous idea I'd ever had, you know, and it was sort of a, I remember my dad kind of going, oh yeah, 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 yeah that sounds, yeah, that's interesting, Ben. Um, yeah, great. Anyway, uh, yeah. you know, um, yeah. Which was which was fine. I I was sort of you know I was the only person working on it. I wasn't taking any silly risks. I wasn't doing anything stupid or harmful. Um, and yeah, then it, it gradually got a bit more serious. And and um, yeah, my family and friends started to kind of I guess join the journey. Um, mm. You know, yeah. I started to work with my dad on how we brought Seedlip to life. And I started to work with mum on how we saw some of the ingredients from our farm, you know, and that, that yeah. was a, yeah, that was a lovely moment. Um, you're like, oh, now you're interested. Yeah. Now I'm doing well, you guys. <laughs> so fickle. Um, if for someone listening who perhaps doesn't have that entrepreneurial network, do you think that there's, um, you know, would you suggest through social media and joining founders forums and going to talks and things do you think there's a lot of opportunity for people to create a network of people who are doing a similar thing you obviously fortunate you had some some access to that but for anyone who might not 100 percent. i mean i didn't know anyone in the drinks industry for example so uh i had to go and meet people and i had to go and reach out to people that you know could i buy them a coffee uh i had to go and listen in on uh, whether it's podcasts read articles uh, try and get hold of, you know, looking at how the heck, what does a business plan look like? What is that? Follow what was going on from a crowdfunding perspective, because that was quite an interesting access point to see how people were launching uh, and, and raising money. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do. I think there's, there's a hell of a lot of resource out there now. Um, whether that's actually meeting people face-to-face or whether that's just signing up to various different events, conferences, you know, there's wonderful podcasts like yours where people get the opportunity to, to listen in on, uh, on what it's like. Um, and I, I like the opportunity now to be able to at least share some of my own experience, um, or just some of the learnings, you know, and there are lots of, I, I kind of, I keep trying to say at every opportunity is some of the boring things like, have you got your trademarks for your name? Have you registered mm-hmm. them in the right class? Um, because that's the only thing really that's worth any money at the end of the day is protecting your brand um, and the IP and intellectual property around it. Like that's a really boring thing. And mm-hmm. not the, sexy exciting here's how you do mm. some marketing or have a nice brand but is so incredibly important um mm. and you, you you don't find that stuff sort of in the handbooks i guess um yeah no totally and that's kind of the thinking behind the podcast as well as a lot of these amazing stories 
you hear and they're quite inaccessible from a practical perspective because they're like I did this amazing thing it's fabulous and it is you know in itself it's a really inspiring story but I think there is a practical element which is if you are somebody who is either in a job that you don't really like, you've got an entrepreneurial flair. We know that over 150,000 businesses have been incorporated since last March. I wow. mean, I don't know how many of those are just to claim furlough money, but we'll yeah. you know, leave that on the side. But there is an entrepreneurial spirit that endures, particularly in this country. And the practical steps of understanding that you have to register on Companies House, how you protect IP, there's a huge amount certainly in the alcohol industry around EU packaging laws, that's all changed. Looking at regulations, what you can and can't say, you don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to get a big fine from someone. Um, And you've got to have your T's and C's done and all that kind of stuff is the really, I mean, for me, it's the boring bit. It's integral, but it's not the bit that I love doing, but Mm. it does get overlooked because it's not the kind of like sexy chat about how you came up with your logo. And I do think it is really important because it's, it's the bit that will trip people up um, and it's the bit that's less available. Um, I want to ask you about how the idea actually came about. What was happening for you? Were you, what was your relationship with alcohol and your sort of observations at the time that led you to actually say, this is, this is a thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, I think Seedlip actually could have been anything really. Um, It, it, it's definitely this, yeah, or it's sort of become more and more this opportunity to kind of put out in the world the way I see the world and what I value and what's important to me, that that's the sort of selfish win for me that meets a need uh, that's relevant uh, in people's lives and in the way that we sort of eat and drink now, um, when the trend for moderation and, and sort of drinking better, uh, is sort of, is only gathering pace. So, you know, see that could have been anything in that sense. Uh, and it, it really started because I wanted to grow more interesting, different varieties of herbs at home. And was just sort of like, okay, I, you know, I got time, rosemary, mint, basil, you know, the usual sort of suspects. What have we forgotten? What what have we what have we stopped growing or what's slightly more unusual? Um, and I found that there are 47,000 edible plants in the world, you know, and you're like, wow. Uh, you know, most of the world's diet consists of three, for example, so yeah that's crazy so you're like dad we need a bigger farm (laughs) (laughs) so I started I started just researching herbs and you know it doesn't take a few (laughs) it only takes a few wikipedia links and suddenly you're down this absolute rabbit hole um and I came across a, a copy of this book called the art of distillation which was someone had scanned in a pdf of it it's a recipe book from the 17th century and had all these recipes and remedies uh, using herbs and spices and using distillation as the method of extraction. Um, I was kind of like, okay, there's some cool ingredients mentioned here. I'd not heard of bladder rack, for example, um, or agrimony. Tell me what that, t- tell me what that tastes like. Bladder racks are seaweed, so you can kind of imagine how it tastes. Um, but it's still like it's still used in herbal medicine today. And mm. I, I, I just think that's, that's a, an amazing journey, you know, mm. that, uh, that sort of, I guess, got lost a bit. Um, anyway, I, I was like, okay, there's illustrations in this PDF, copper still, okay, internet. You can buy one of those in the UK off the internet. So I bought a little two and a half liter still. And I just started playing around in my kitchen. And for me, it was not about a drink. It was just about the alchemy of being able to take a plant from my garden and make a liquid that smelt and tasted like that plant. To me, was that was an, a really magical transformation. Um, and that was that was quite cool. Evenings and weekends, you know, mucking around. I like, yeah, I like process and I like how things are made and 
the sort of gadgets and arts and crafts. I, you know, I, I do love that aspect. So that was fine until somebody uh, in a restaurant in London served me just the most fucking horrible pink, fruity, sweet, childish, mm. you know, mocktail. Um, with a sexy name, no doubt. With a stupid name. Uh, <laughs> and I just felt like an idiot, you know. I yeah. just felt like an idiot. And it wasn't a lightning bulb moment. I, it wasn't mm. something like, oh, my God, I know what the world needs. But I, I just, I left thinking, why are the options so bad? And mm. how hard can it be? And this was back in 2013. You know, this this was like, it it shouldn't be that difficult. Um mm. And then, it's interesting that you it's interesting that you say it wasn't like this is what the world needs, but it seems to you were almost like this is what I need. Like I, I don't want to have that experience personally, yes. and therefore let's start with me. And then I guess proving a hypothesis comes later. Yeah, and that was the sort of dot joining exercise of okay, I want something better. Uh what am I doing at home is interesting mm-hmm. with the still. Farming side, design side, you know, maybe there's something, uh, maybe there's something here. And then I guess to your point, the killer question of maybe I'm not alone here, right? You know, maybe somebody else is also annoyed if they get an orange juice or plain fizzy water. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that that was literally me. I mean, I went to university 2000. 9 to 2012 and I didn't drink a sip of alcohol throughout my time at university okay. and you're like so I, so it's diet coke or elderflower so I'm gonna not be able to sleep for two days because yes. of the sugar content in my body and my teeth are gonna fall out by the time I'm 25 yeah. so you're like well those are those are quite narrow options actually at this point um and you do there literally wasn't anything else so I mean it's no. it's a I'm sort of that person who was like desperate for a, for an alternative. So yeah, it, I, I imagine that was quite a um, interesting dialogue for you to kind of look up from your own situation and be like, come on, there's gotta be, there's gotta be others. Yeah. I, um, and you know, and then it, it was, it was two years of sort of figuring out how the hell to distill things properly and, what a drinks business is and how the alcohol industry works and all, all of those, but but continually keeping that kind of why are the options so bad and they don't need to be so bad uh, mm. when we have alternatives in so many other categories now where someone doesn't want to eat it this way, meat, for example. Mm. Um, but we're, we're getting quite good as a society about the alternatives, whether it's dairy, mm. whether it's vegetarian options, whether it's alternative fuels. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of even vaping, right? We're, we're like, yeah. we're getting quite good at there being an alternative um, mm. and that being okay and it not needing to be, why aren't you drinking alcohol? Are you okay? Are you pregnant? Mm. What's going on? Hello. Yeah, I used to get, I remember, and I, I mean, I didn't drink until um, my 30s. I actually didn't start drinking until I met my boyfriend. So I don't know what that says about the, the our relationship, but um, we'll leave, leave that to the side. Um, but I used to get, and even at the age of like 25, people used to be like, oh, are you recovering? And I was like, sorry, you think I've like had a severe alcohol addiction and now recovering from it at 25? Like, thank you for thinking my life is more colorful than it is, but yeah. no. And, and actually what was really interesting was that I used to, I used to get people saying, I mean, I, my relationship with alcohol was basically that I just didn't really like alcohol. And then yeah. I was, I went to university, I studied criminal law, I started my business, I played a lot of sport. There just wasn't a moment where like heavy drinking featured in a way that was productive. And mm-hmm. so I was fortunate because I was slightly, disinterested in it and people always used to say to me oh, I'm so jealous because I didn't really want to drink but like everyone else is and there's not another option and I always used to think that was such an astounding thing to to sort of accept that you sort of have acknowledged it doesn't work for you you've acknowledged there's an alternative and I imagine that with with your brand with your business it's not it's not an absolute excuse excuse the pun it's not an absolute thing right like you're not expecting people to necessarily 
stop drinking alcohol. But there's people like me who don't drink and it's an option, but there's also people who actually like don't want to drink every time they go out. And so it's a kind of combined hybrid approach to, to, to that balance. What, what was happening in the alcohol world in 2013, 14, 15? And, and what are your thoughts on why, this didn't exist in a, you know, in the way that you discovered it. Why wasn't it an option? I, I think it's, I mean, so many different reasons why I don't think it, I don't think it was an option. I think firstly, just from a timing perspective, I, I don't think it was the right time previous to that. Um, you know, when you look at, the role of a, even the role of a village pub, right? And you look at the journey that a pub has been on, for example, from being sort of old man drinking, we're going to the pub and we're going to drink uh, beer at the pub to actually there could be some food at the pub as well. So, okay, there's a drinking kind of lead pub that now has food to then a gastro pub where suddenly food is now why you're going. That's the occasion and drink is part of it. You know, that in the drinks industry world, that's a massive change, right? That's a massive societal shift to then, oh, the drinking pub, drinking led pubs are closing. You know, there isn't the old man sat at the end with his kind of stack of copper coins propping the bar, you know, that's a big change. And then you've got Michelin-starred pubs suddenly, and you're like, wow, like we, we're now going to the pub for a different reason, you know. Uh, there's sort of a different occasion there. So, you know, there's something like that going on, uh, health, wellness, um, being obviously a, a massive fuel um the number of nightclubs shrinking dramatically, people favoring, you know, sort of more experiences over just let's go out and get drunk. Um, impact of social media, impact of our lives being more public, not wanting to uh, look stupid. It's sort of that that kind of era of the 90s of it, of you know, falling out of a nightclub at 4am being glamorized in the media. Mm -hmm. Um, Suddenly green juices and yoga are being glamorized in the media. Um, And so actually it becoming more cool to be healthy uh, and less cool to sort of um, be, you know, burning the candle at both ends. Um, Mm. and then you've got the rise of sort of cocktails and better drinking and premium spirits and that whole premiumization trend across so many different categories of better quality, you know, more premium, better provenance, better production methods, uh, you know, coupled with the rise of what I guess you'd call purpose-led brands um, yeah. and that splintering sort of segmenting of, the world not just being run by big corporates, um, but mm. having a great groundswell of smaller, medium-sized companies, um, you know, really in touch with with what consumers want. And you've got, you know, access to e-commerce, so you can access loads of different products that you would never have had access to before. Um, yeah. It's this sort of huge... Like, it's just this huge sort of paradigm shift, I guess, that's happened, you know, not overnight, but over the course mm-hmm. of the of the decades. And the output and the impact of that has meant people are moderating their alcohol consumption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's a really interesting point as well that extends beyond just the industry because it impacts entrepreneurialism too. Because what, certainly when I started in 2012, there were very few founder-led businesses garnering press coverage. It was your big, you know, it was the Zuckerberg, the Musk, the Richard Branson type vibe. And it was very male oriented. And it was also these huge companies that were sort of billion dollars and and they were um, doing really large scale, innovative things that had quite a political impact as well. And then quite quickly, actually, probably 
in the three years that followed that with social media, creating more customer feedback, more uh, exposure for brands, both positively and negatively. There was a lot of, I've quit my job in the city and started this business. And that was a real thing that didn't exist. Um, There weren't entrepreneurs conferences, there weren't uh, spaces for people to really take and seize those opportunities. The access, as you say, was kind of minimal due to big corporate companies running everything. And I think you're right that the the shift of the 90s where you sort of are loose as anything and have a bag of Coke for breakfast wasn't, it, it's sort of not an aspirational, desirable place to be. Having your shit together and being healthy and, and well and mindful has become much more of a status symbol than being a mess. Yeah. Um, and I think that similarly with the way that it's broadcast, you, you I saw it with, I was working quite a lot with them. Um, uh, Pentland who have uh, JD Sports, LS, Speedo, etc. And with and I remember sitting in a meeting in probably 2011 where someone gave a talk saying there's this new thing called athleisure. And which seems so ludicrous now when you think about Lululemon, especially all these big brands. Um, and I remember them having a profile of like, there's a, you know, there's a woman who lives in Richmond and pushes a bugaboo and she wears mm. leggings to go to Waitrose. And you just go like, this is mental. And none of the shops sold. The only place you could buy sports kit was a sports shop. And then mm-hmm. suddenly you had top shop doing sports bras and all these things. And the evolution of all these things has um, it, historically in a very short period of time, even if it's sort of 10, 15 years, still a relatively short period of time. So I guess, interestingly, for you, there was a perfect storm of behavioral shift anyway going on that you then saw the opportunity for. Has Did to you have to be, you know, to create a movement and, you know, creating a category and creating a movement are two, in my opinion, incredibly different things. Um, and to, to create a really big, sustainable, impactful category there needs to be a, some cultural forces at work mm. outside of the category um, that all groundswell up to creating a, a movement and an ecosystem. Um, that means, you know, now you've got, whether it's books written uh, with about non-alc, whether it's podcasts, Instagram, uh, festivals, shops, events, menus, etc. There are multiple touch points now, all over the world, in all different um, areas of society, that uh, are all sort of speaking the same. You know, there are options if you're not drinking alcohol for whatever reason, kind of uh, language, and and that's. Yeah, that's when really exciting things happen. And and that's when real, you know, big shifts can can start to occur. Did you find it difficult to think about growth outside of the UK in terms of thinking about whether to remain a localised brand in this market or grow the business, particularly as the pub and restaurant culture is, well, the pub culture certainly is very specific to the UK and not necessarily replicated elsewhere. Was that a challenging thought process in terms of market research and, and looking at um, potentially having to really change multiple things to impact different markets? Um, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, it, it was in the sense that you've got no data to go off. You know, there's no non-alc products in any other market. So you're kind of like, OK, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't have any kind of good reference point. The premiumization, moderation, health and wellness, all those bigger macro trends, uh, you know, are happening at different rates, but all over the world. So that was, you know, there were various data points I could look at of where's Fever Tree big? Where's Lululemon big? You know, as two pithy examples, where are cocktail trends big? You know, there are sort of, where is the Michelin guide? You know, there are lots of sort of areas slightly outside of the box. Um, but, you know, I, I heard from 100 countries in the first three months and ma- mainly through people, you know, mainly people in the drinks industry, distributors and wholesalers. And um, and that was a pretty amazing indication of what, what was kind of going on or what could go on. 
um, we didn't go to our another uh, international market, which really was the US first um, until a couple of years after we launched. So we we kind of quite strict with ourselves on just making sure that GB was was settled, established, learning our our model and uh, being able to scale up, I guess, in preparation to go to the US. Um, you know, and, and now now we're in 40 countries and in all these kind of key cultural capital cities around the world, it's, on the one hand, it's all quite similar. You know, there are amazing bars, there are amazing restaurants, there are uh, cultured, well-educated, um, discerning people who are looking for quality, looking for great companies to buy things from, um, who also are moderating their alcohol intake. Um, you know, and you add that up, that's a lot of people, and that's a, a lot of potential um, across the world. So, you know, given that the drinks industry is incredibly small and all on social media, things can fly quite quickly, you know, where markets can hear about it very, very quickly and far faster than they could have done without kind of needing someone to go to that market and go, hey, guys, we're here. You know, they can discover things like that, which is, um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. I do have some sexier questions for you coming up, um, but I do want to ask you one other practical question. I'm going to read you something. So Ben launched Seedlip Spice 94 in London Selfridges on November 4th, 2015. His first handmade 1,000 bottles sold out within three weeks, the second thousand in three days and the third in 30 minutes online. So we, we hear a lot about on and off trade and distribution network and D2C brands and when the right time is to partner and do you go to all your local stores and off licenses and small places first, or do you go and get your massive retailer, even if you might get delisted? And what was your initial strategy and what advice would you give to anyone launching in this space about that conundrum at launch? Yeah, really good one. I I guess if you've got something that's premium um, or weird or both um uh like a non-alcoholic spirit premium and weird um and unless you are like an absolute god of the industry or an absolute superstar or a celebrity or whatever then in my case um me saying that seedlip was was quite good wasn't really going to mean anything so our launch was all about reputation, credibility, and advocacy. And that meant you go and launch in places and associate uh, yourself with key influential people. Um, Selfridges uh, being one of them, you know, hotels like the Savoy uh, or restaurants like the Fat Duck being, you know, others. Um, And that set us up to... Yeah, we got some great PR on the back of that. Um, we got the industry listening. We got buyers taking notice. We could target, you know, discerning people who were looking to, who were foodie, who wanted to discover new and interesting uh, brands. And we didn't go into a supermarket, you know, for 18 months. I didn't, I was very against even having a website that could sell Seedlip initially. So, we didn't even have D to C for the first 18 months. Um, and we just built, you know, it was, could I get into 50 bars in the first six months? That was, that was one of the goals. And I, and I, is that you showing up being like, hello, look at this product. I've got some data that tells you that this much, this percentage of people don't want to buy, you know, alcohol. There's an opportunity here. Please take a bottle. That, Emily, not even as sophisticated as that. It, it was more, uh, please take this product <laughs> no, what this uh can you taste it and what do you think um and that sort of one bar led to another bar 
and led to another restaurant and led then some press led to hi we're from the fat duck can you come in and do a tasting please we've heard about your product um you know led to hi tom carriage shit massive fan um yeah i can deliver it to you weekly no problem and and you'll give me an envelope of cash and i'll you know bring you the stuff from the back of my car no problem yeah um, and it it you know walking into the american bar at the savoy which is you know a really world top cocktail bar and yeah. the head bartender saying to me i heard about you last week in greece i heard about this product they were talking about it in this great bar in greece i'm like but we only launched two weeks ago you know and You're like, like, oh, that Greek, that Greek guy I gave the bottle to on the tube. He's <laughs> he's been pretty helpful for us. Do you when obviously presumably you haven't traveled much in the last eighteen months? But no. um, when you in the prior to that and and you know onwards, do you still get excited when you go into a bar that perhaps you you know now the size of the business you might not have dealt with directly and you see the product? Do you still does it still oh excite God, you? I mean, it's- it's one thing to kind of, you know, it's one thing to go into a bar where you've got a meeting, right, with the bar and you're presenting, um, you know, I'm presenting Seedlip and they're tasting it and will they, mm-hmm. do they like it, do they not, will they take it, will they not. It's it's a whole other thing when, you know, a friend kind of sends you a photo uh, because they were somewhere and they got served seedlip or you walk into a place not even thinking about seedlip and you know i was in a a hotel a couple of weeks ago and my daughter you know spotted seedlip on the back bar uh and it's like ah yeah it's really that's that's great you know yeah you never want to be too cool to not get excited about that no and you know i i remember going to flying to shanghai we were launching there uh really excited i'd never been to china before they've got an amazing cocktail scene in in china and the guy that picked me up from the airport you know asked me to get in his car and started taking his shirt off and i was just like what the hell what is going on here mate like, am i in the right car what's going on and he took his shirt off because he'd had the fox from Seedlip Spice tattooed on yeah. his arm, you know, and you're just like, this is nuts. This is That's nuts. nuts. Um, That's and nuts. he was a bartender, you know, he's a bartender who just absolutely loved Seedlip and, and wanted it tattooed on his arm. Um, wow. So, yeah, I it, it continues to be sort of surreal um, mm-hmm. and amazing. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's for me how it should be. Have the goalposts for success changed? You mentioned at the beginning that success was kind of seeing something through and having a product on a shelf. You know, what do you feel like that has shifted? Was it um, raising money? Was it a sale? Was it? It's never enough. And uh, I'm never, I'm never satisfied. I'm usually convinced that it's all going to crumble. Um, Mm. Or that it's, or that it's gonna, yeah, that it's all kind of, kind of go wrong. Um, mm. Fortunately, I'm continually surprised, which is great. Um, but yeah, it's never, you know, I want to change the way the world drinks. Like that's never done. We're we're in 40 countries. We're just getting started. There's a hundred other countries that mm. um, are gonna gonna need the same options and the same movement. Um, behind it and you know that's partly I guess why we launched Acorn Aperitifs which was our second brand two years ago um, with Claire that that sort of was a another kind of hey look it's not enough there need to be amazing options Um, there's room for lots of brands in this space let's let's kind of let's keep leading and and shaping it um, rather than yeah, just sort of sitting back and going, okay, we've got Seedlit, that's nice, let's just keep going. Um, yeah, I, 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 the goalposts keep keep moving, 100%. 
Have you ever felt like you, you mentioned a moment ago that you have that fear, which is probably an entrepreneur's curse a bit where you're worried that it's all going to go away or someone's going to ring you and say, Oh, I'm so sorry. This is actually a joke. Um, you've got no money in your bank account and no one wants to work with you. Um, do you ever feel, I mean, imposter syndrome is a, a potentially hyperbolic phrase for this, but have you ever felt like, guys, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I don't, ha- um, or have you always felt that, you know, this is, I'm supposed to be here and I'm supposed to be running this. And I feel very comfortable that I'm making good decisions and, and I'm the person who should be in this role. A bit of both, I guess. I I 100% believe that I was born to do this, right? I kind of, I do genuinely, I do genuinely believe, um, I do genuinely believe that. Uh, I definitely have, you know, for the first six months, I wanted to pack it in every, every week. I hated it. Um, and I've gone through bouts of being just completely overwhelmed and out of my depth. Um, and what the hell am I doing? Uh, yeah, plenty of that. Um, but then also to, to be fair to myself, moments of real, like absolute laser beam crystal clarity of like, I am right where I need to be. And I can see things so exquisitely clearly of what needs to happen or this decision that needs to be made or where we're going um that have yeah maybe only three or four moments like that a year but have been able to therefore make big calls or big decisions or changes um or you know be able to lead the team with real clarity and direction of like this is the plan this is where we're going you know let's go um so yeah a bit of a bit of both i guess is my answer you sold a majority stake to Diageo in 2019. Was that always part of the plan? Did you always see uh, some sort of buyout or investment in some capacity? Or was that an opportunity that presented itself that you you know, made a call on? It was, I guess, the plan from the beginning, after I got over the, okay, it's not going to be a farmer's market and a side project. Um, once I was like, I'm putting my life savings in. I'm getting the tattoo. I'm selling my stake in my design business. I am in. Let's do this. Um, The plan was, well, to make this big or scale this business and deliver on what I think is the opportunity and change the way the world drinks. At some point, I'm going to need someone who can help do that. And that should, I think, or I thought, be a strategic partner who can really help with distribution and knows the drinks industry, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, Diageo invested early on summer of 2016 um, and took a minority stake. And then they took the majority stake in uh, summer of 2019, uh, which sort of flips us around. So I'm the minority shareholder and they're the majority shareholder. And having, you know, a multi-billion pound company that's one of the world's biggest premium spirits companies that sells their products in 180 countries, when you want to deliver on some sort of crazy, deluded ambition of changing the way the world drinks, you're kind of like, well, I, I mean, this, this should be the recipe, right? This, this, this is how we can do it. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of, it is part of the plan in that sense of, oh, I don't get excited about selling lots of bottles or making things big. I get excited about what that means we can do, the impact that means we can have, um, the ex- the opportunities for more expression of, of the brand. Um, and Diageo absolutely do get excited mm-hmm. about making things big and are very, very good at making things big. Um, so in that sense, it should be the best of both, both worlds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about running a business? Twice as long and twice as much. That's probably quite a decent bit of advice that I was given. That That's my, uh, that's my dating <laughs> advice, actually, interestingly. <laughs> um 
Yeah, I, I uh, yeah, that's probably that's. I think that's the best. Who who gave you that advice? Uh, I've, a number of people actually. Oh, um, really? Yeah, my dad being one of them. Uh, friend of mine who's an architect that was talking about buildings actually, but um, was just like it's probably the same actually, uh, just as a business lesson. Um, mm. you know, the plans are wrong as soon as you as soon as you write them. Um, yeah, so, add a zero kind of thing. Yeah, it's sort of best case and, you know, aim for the best or plan for the worst or whatever the saying is. Mm. Which is Hope for the best, plan for the worst. worst. There we go. Which is twice as long, twice as much being yeah. the worst. What are the most valuable investments that you've made in the business uh, to help it grow? I think... Uh, Two, one, the decision to the slightly unique or more unusual in the in the drinks industry anyway was to bring design and PR in house um, and build a team of uh, build a team of people um, to do that in house, working with agency partners as and where we needed, but actually to have the engine from a PR and a design perspective in house. Um, paid off really well the second one i guess was you know building a big team and investing in that team and culture um especially where you know coaching development um was concerned for for people to sort of yeah really progress and grow their career um and yeah pretty heavily investing in that and in people's future um yeah it was probably the second the second one mm. Sustainability is now a prerequisite of any modern brand. Um, it has to be on their agenda. Seedlip is very much leading the charge in this space. Tell me about your efforts to be carbon neutral by 2022. Yeah, so you know, I love nature. It's um, it's also pretty key <laughs> to how we make Seedlip, given that we use real ingredients, you know, that are grown. Um, Therefore, it's quite business critical in some ways that if there is no nature, there's no seed lip, um, not in a kind of Armageddon kind of way. Uh, and there are way many bit bigger problems if there's no nature. But, you know, we rely on nature to make our to make our products. So therefore, we rely on nature to have a business. Um, and therefore, why wouldn't we want to do everything that we could to have the least harm um, and hopefully best sort of inspiration and, and uh, set a good example um, of how business can be run more in the rhythm of uh, being kind to the natural world. So it takes many different guises, I guess, um, and whether that's on a sort of team and cultural level, we close the business every year for a week in August for nature we can pay people to go and spend time in nature basically um not together uh but everybody takes a week's holiday all at the same time um and so you've got you know the guys in australia going off to the great barrier reef or you know going off into the mountains and people going off into the english countryside brilliant sort of reset to then all come back with a big push towards christmas um you know team litter picking or like all those lots of little things um where nature's concerned at a bigger business and operational level we conducted um a life cycle analysis uh, a couple of years ago which looked at our carbon footprint from seed to bin basically um so literally every single ingredient uh all of our markets and what happened when somebody finished a bottle where did they put it and what happened to that bottle um and the results you know that was sort of a nine ten month project the results of that um a told us you know that we weren't bad and that the data backed up what we believed in terms of the way we run uh, our business but also it gave us an opportunity to go actually if we moved our e-commerce warehouses in the u.s from these three locations to these four locations, we'll cut down on miles, we'll cut down on 
uh, on our carbon footprint in the US because we'll be closer to our consumers, um, which actually, you know, then start to make a big impact. Oh, do you know what? If we had, if our bottle was 20% lighter, that would take out, you know, some of the glass that's required from the uh, supply chain. If we, like, if we change from having little bits of foil on the front of our bottle to using metallic inks, foil is actually quite a lot of waste with. You know, we were like into the minutiae, um, which is is amazing, is is really, really brilliant. And so that then kicked off a whole load of commitments and, and work streams, A, to, you know, reduce our glass weight by 20%, for example, B, to change, you know, e-commerce warehouses, um, look at the inks, all of those like sort of supply chain pieces. That also kicked off committing to uh, being a member of 1% for the planet, so donating 1% of our annual sales to environmental organizations, um, which is great. We're sort of 90% of the way through our B Corp accreditation, which is good. And then effectively, because we don't have our own distillery, we are reducing, reducing, reducing our carbon footprint to as low a level as we can get it. Um, and then we will offset the remaining small amounts working with most likely regenerative agricultural organizations that are directly supporting uh, farms, farming practices about how we can sort of grow better and more in line with uh, biodiversity uh, goals um, so that we're sort of, yeah, trying to kind of close continually trying to close the loop and close the circle um, on not taking more than we need from the natural world. Um, so, yeah, it's it's great. And that the aim is to have that all done by the end of next calendar year. Um, mm. We can be certified carbon neutral. And this, you know, this is all like the least that we can do, right? It's not going to, yeah. it's not going to solve the climate crisis. Um it's not going to change the world, but it's the minimum um, that we think we we should be doing. Uh, mm. That's not marketing or sexy, or it's it's just yeah. I, I hope all that kind of stuff just becomes business as usual for mm. many around the world um, as fast as possible. Yeah, I mean that is a that's a huge topic. And with that in mind, how do you make sure that you keep learning? What do you expose yourself to to make sure that you know, um, you know, generally things about business and but also your sector sustainability and then just things that kind of inflame you and inspire you? How, how do you keep learning? So I'm a, I mean, I'm a real sponge uh, just for soaking up, you know, whether it's the load of Google alerts I have on stuff um, or, you know, just news feeds that I read um, or luckily, you know, the network of people around the world that means we can, we can just assimilate and soak up what's going on. Um, I've just started studying agronomy, uh, which is kind of the study of soil science, uh, soil management, um, crop production. Um, so that's giving me a really just more formal insight rather than just knowing about, you know, how our potatoes are grown at home um that's sort of giving me a an aspect there you know I, I kind of I do learn a lot actually from just being with my kids you know and, and that's not formal learning that's just re-seeing stuff you know re-seeing how awesome a ladybird is um is just it's not gonna it's not kind of formal learning and it's not necessarily going to help um decisions I've got to make for seedlip, but it is going to help my brain just quieten down and relax and be in a better frame of mind to make better decisions. Um, so yeah, a few, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really not that social. Uh, and obviously I haven't traveled really anywhere for the last 18 months. So I do miss the sort of, tactile sensorial aspect of going to a completely different restaurant or going to a completely different city and just being exposed to 
the billboards when you leave an airport, right, on your journey to the hotel and you're like hit with all these billboards. I do miss soaking up kind of some of that culture. Oh, that's sort of culture to me, but most people it's museums. But, you know, I, I do miss sort of feeling and smelling uh, a city or a bar, um, yeah, or different kinds of food. So hopefully, you know, in the next 12 months, we'll get get back to some of that. Yeah, absolutely. The podcast is called The Busyness Podcast. There is a bit of a standard now of success, which is akin to how busy you are. You have three dogs, two children, a wife, a very, very successful, growing, exciting business. If you had an extra hour in the day, what would you use it for? I, I kind of just say my kids, I think. I mean, you know, it's I've been around so much, which has been amazing the last 18 months. I sort of wouldn't change that for the world. And, and so that brings new routines and means that, you know, I can take my daughter to nursery every morning and I can put her to bed every night. And, uh, yeah, probably just, just an extra hour with the kids and, and the animals, actually. I'll take that. That's lovely. You're right there. It's like, you know, it, it's been an extraordinary 18 months anyway, but I think the capacity that you've had, you've obviously made very good choices about where you live and who you spend your time with, but the the ability to be an entrepreneur and be running a business and also do a school run and put your kids to bed is, is often not something people are able to do. So it definitely feels like you've, you've got that balance right. Um, the next... 12 months the next six months are really exciting I think the world is beginning to move a bit faster than it has in the last the last year or so what's next for for Seedlip and what, what's next for you uh I mean Seedlip wise you know we all things considered we had a great year um over the last last 12 months and we're going to be launching in some exciting new markets at the beginning of the next calendar year. We've got some exciting partnerships to announce towards the end of the year. Um, we've got new products we're working on um, that we want to bring to market. Uh, so, yeah, like from that side of things, loads of exciting stuff coming up for Seedlip. For Acorn, we're launching in the US later this summer, um, which would be brilliant to kind of take, uh, yeah, a non-alcoholic spritz um, and and kind of get going with that in the US. Um, that's kind of, you know, that's 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 enough. Uh, yeah, that, that's enough. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. That's enough. <laughs> um ben thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today i know you're busy i know you've got a million things going on but your story is fascinating and exciting and inspiring and interesting and i i'm really grateful that you've taken the time to talk a bit more about some of the detail around the business side i think it will be really really valuable for people in all different stages of their entrepreneurial journey but um no doubt will be inspired by what you've achieved so thank you very much thank you for having me mm-hmm.